So welcome to this edition of On The Pulse, in which CMS experts provide updates on the key developments bringing innovation and disruption to the life sciences and healthcare sector. I'm your host, Nick Beckett. Uh, today, we're exploring the opportunities and challenges in dealing with commercial collaborations. I'm delighted to be joined by three of the CMS life sciences and healthcare specialists who regularly advise clients in this sector. We've got Roland Waring, again, from Germany. We have Sarah Hansen, who splits her time between the UK and Singapore, and Laurent Romano from, the, from France. So welcome, first of all, to all of you. So with On The Pulse, we're uh, obviously looking at trends and typically things that are disrupting industry. And I think over the last years, we've seen a huge change in the life sciences space. The, uh, the traditional blockbuster model has been seriously stretched and challenged. Uh, the quest to find replacement blockbusters with ever increasing costs has often uh, not succeeded. So the industry's looked for new ways of operating. Uh, they've turned to biotechnology, they've turned to services and the provision of fuller healthcare solutions. Uh, they've moved into digital uh, health and getting uh, to grips with technology. And more participants are being involved now. So patients are demanding more uh, personalized uh, medicines and solutions. Uh, we're having startups always involved in the uh, early stages, but uh, um, more and more involved in the uh, ongoing research and development programs, and then new entrants to the markets, uh, technology companies, and so on. So it's becoming a more complicated place. Uh, there are more sophisticated collaborations that we're seeing. It's no longer simply uh, agreements, licensing agreements or other between two pharmaceutical companies or med tech companies. We're seeing multiple players involved researchers, universities, authorities, uh, payers, these new market entrants. And we're seeing new business models as well, uh, shifting of responsibilities, more flexible pricing structures, accessing new markets, and especially in times of COVID also, the greater involvement of the authorities in the state. So I'd like to turn then to our, our eminent panel, um, all of whom are very seasoned uh, operators in the delivery of commercial collaborations and uh, commercial contract solutions for clients, I think probably with well in excess of 60 or so years of experience. And I guess the first theme and question that I've got is, has your job fundamentally changed? Is the old uh, means of contracting, is that model dead? Uh, would we now not see sort of simple license arrangements between pharmaceutical companies? So I guess maybe just to kick off, we should probably just explore briefly what, what I mean by old models. Um, so maybe, Laurent, do you want to kick us off with, with that? Yes, thank you, Nick. In, in the life sciences sector, it was uh, traditionally common for, for a player to internally carry out main activities uh, related to a medicine or medical uh, device. Partnerships uh, existed in particular regarding the externalization of um, manufacturing uh, process or, or development of, of manufacturing process but were less common uh, than they are today and included less parties. Consequently, the, the contractual models were less complex because they involved fewer stakeholders and therefore fewer interconnected rights, obligations and, and divisions of uh, ref responsibilities. Yeah, I agree with what Lauren just said there. There's been a number of sort of tried and tested models that we've all used over the last sort of, as you said, Nick, collectively 60 years between us. So 
when you're looking at the development of a product, we'd look at R&D agreements, going on to collaborations, licensing, manufacturing, and then distribution. And each of those would have been separate components. So life science companies could very easily just think, these are the particular contracts we need to look through on our research and development activities, our commercialization, and effectively our business development when we're buying in products or licensing them. So, yeah, there's been very good tried and tested agreements that we've used for quite a long time. And are those those tried and tested, you know, old old uh, traditional models? Are they dead? Do you think? Uh, I, I would say they are. They are more involving than than dead. Uh, the, the the life science contracting models are instead modifying and and adapting uh, in response to the new conditions present in in the sector. As a matter of fact, we increasingly have to work on projects involving extensive collaboration between several players at different stage, manufacturing level, distribution level, but also. Uh, at the R&D uh, level or even further upstream at the level of determining the, the characteristics of a, of a product, uh, of services or an overall solution offered. Uh, and this increases the number of legal issues related with the project, particularly in, in contract law, in intellectual property law or competition law, else law and uh, uh, also, of course, personal data protection law. Uh, companies in the life sciences sector uh, do not just offer a product anymore. Service offerings have multiplied considerably. Product services combined uh, offers require broader contractual solution, and it's frequently necessary to draft several uh, R&D contracts to determine uh, which party will provide which expertise or asset. Uh, and then uh, at the manufacturing and marketing level to organize a possible distribution of the task, cost and, and, and uh, income at, at the end. Uh, as discussed in our previous podcast, the development of digital solutions has also broadened the scope of possible offers to meet the ever-increasing needs of the uh, healthcare sector, particularly given the increase of chronic disease uh, linked to our lifestyles. Uh, this is sometimes referred to as beyond-the-pill approach, yes, going beyond drug treatment alone to, to focus more on the patient, uh, notably by relying on new technologies enabling to propose an overall therapeutic solution and this is also in line with the current desire of, uh, of public authorities to increase the share of uh, ambulatory care and, and reduce uh, health cost. In any case, such approach requires the integration of, of several elements uh, developed and owned by different parties in order to integrate them into an overall uh, final uh, offer. Yeah, so I agree with what Lauren just said. I mean, these sorts of agreements have their place still in very much in the work that we're doing. And we've got some really good examples of that in the UK. So there are a set of templates called the Lambert Agreements and the Brunswick Agreements. And the Lambert Agreements were set up by the UK Intellectual Property Office. And there are a series of templates for collaborations between academia and industry. 
The Brunswick ones are similar. They're set up between Scottish universities and the Russell Group. And again, they're good places to go to if you want some sort of standard templates for collaborations, material transfer agreements, etc. And then even when you look on to doing clinical trials in the UK, again, we have got a good block of precedence we can use there through the National Institute of Health Research. So again, parties don't need to worry about negotiating around all of the terms. A lot of the basic terms are going to be there. But inevitably, there's going to be some differences. You can't just you can't just go to a sort of standard template and assume that that's going to answer all your questions. So areas around liability, IP, confidentiality, of course, they're still going to be very sensitive in a clinical trial type contract. The, the scope of use of the um, data, et cetera, is still going to be something that's going to be debated. But they're a good starting point and they can save a lot of time for parties when they're entering into these sorts of arrangements that don't need to be overly complicated. So it, it sounds as though the, the old models then are not are not dead as, as such, but rather they're evolving and changing. Uh, and I guess the question arises, well, what's replacing the old models then? So, Roland, do you want to comment on that? Yeah, thank you. So I agree that um, certainly the tried and tested agreements that we have are still very important, that they are not dead. They are evolving, I would say. They are alive and evolving. And uh, we certainly do a lot of them, especially when it comes to the collaborations that we just talked about. So in licensing, out licensing, collaboration with different players. Um, but the traditional um, two-party agreements, I would say, um, are not the only um, possibilities in our armory. Um, we have more weapons, so to speak, and also a need for a bigger variety of agreements because there's a greater convergence between the different players. Uh, there are new roles and responsibilities. We are coming to that also in relation to the MDR later. And therefore, um, these contracting models need to be adapted uh, to the client's needs. Um, so let me yeah, show this with some examples. If, if we talk about convergence, um, there are more and more uh, pharmaceutical or medical companies, medical devices companies, or even investors entering into the healthcare space. So what does that mean? It means that uh, in order to really um, go there and, and be successful there, you have to understand the regulatory context, you have to understand how, a, for instance, a medical service center works, and you have to collaborate with different uh, players in, in this industry, and you enter a whole, totally new market. So the convergence of, um, um, Laurent talked about beyond the pill, uh, so the convergence between the pharmaceutical company, the product, and the service also um, um, demands new ways of collaboration and new ways of uh, mirroring this in an agreement. Another example is R&D, where we see a lot of collaborations happening, especially now with, um, with COVID and, and the quest for, for a vaccine or for, for um, medical treatment. And as Sarah just mentioned, there are very good um, templates uh, that can be used. For instance, in Germany, also the BVMed or other industry associations provide such, uh, such examples for R&D agreements. So there we see also um, bigger efforts by, by the clients and bigger necessity to, to collaborate. Um, we could name several in the quest of, of the vaccine. Uh, so I think there, there, there is a lot in the, in the media. On the other hand, what is interesting, and I would also like to add that in, in terms of collaboration and um, with, with um, other players, 
is that there's a, uh, another trend that's insourcing. For instance, for manufacturing, um, we see in Europe, or, and, and this has also been um, pushed by the COVID-19 situation, um, uh, the need uh, to insource API production. And that, in turn, also means that this traditional um, collaboration models with manufacturers somehow change. Uh, manufacturing activities are insourced again. You need then uh, all of a sudden to buy certain production facilities. We see a lot of acquisition happening in this uh, space. So um, I think there's more collaboration between different players on the one hand, but on the other hand, there's also a, a different trend in insourcing, which then um, follows or it follows from that that you need different uh, collaboration partners um, in that respect to insource your production, for instance. So I'd say these are two very important trends uh, for the collaboration aspects. There is a, a real enthusiasm for a service-oriented digital approach, which requires a diversification of expertise. And, and we are witnessing an increase in remote monitoring solution for patients staying at home. Uh, thanks to software and connecting medical devices, allowing uh, constant communication between patients uh, and, and HCPs. Uh, for example, the, the French medtech uh, Curity has developed a solution for health status of their patients uh, suffering from, from cancer. This startup has also announced several uh, partnerships with the, uh, the, 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 the pharma AstraZeneca. Uh, home care, nursing services, and teleconsultation service in order to, to offer an integrate, uh, integrated uh, suite of, of telemedicine services. Other similar projects are, are, are currently ongoing in France. Yeah, so just building on what Lauren and Roland were saying, I mean, there's a whole series of factors as to why these particular contractual models are changing. And generally, we're reacting to what's happening in the industry. So the larger players are inevitably cautious about investing all of their R&D spend directly into one license or one acquisition. So increasingly, we're seeing that they want some form of option arrangement where they might do some early stage feasibility or a collaboration for a period of time with the ability to have an option to acquire. So we saw that with Celgene when they entered into an arrangement with Juno Therapeutics in 2015. It was supposed to be a 10-year collaboration, but in actual fact, they exercised their option only three years later to buy the company for $9 billion. <clears throat> There's other examples of that. So in France last year with um, Laurent Monod, Vivette Therapeutics, which is a gene therapy company, entered into a deal with Pfizer. Again, Pfizer has an option to acquire the company if it wants to for 630 million. It hasn't yet exercised that option, but obviously it's treating the collaboration as a period in which it can see and assess what it thinks of the technology that it's looking at. And then, of course, we've got new therapeutic areas that are coming through that we need to think about. There's a lot in the gene cell therapy space, and that inevitably is impacting on contracts because the nature of that therapy is you need to get it to where it needs to get to in a very short period of time. So you need to think much more around the logistics of shipping and transportation and storage than you do with some other areas. So that inevitably is impacting on what we are drafting. And then, of course, as we all know, there's more laws, more regulations, and inevitably that is increasing the level of contractual arrangements that we need. So 
with GDPR coming in, we've got data processing agreement, joint controller agreements, um, with pharmacovigilance, we've got um, safety data exchange contracts that need to be entered into. There's a whole myriad of contracts now that we need to think about around any simple, what we would, may have thought was a simple contractual arrangement. There is inevitably other elements. And then we're going to get on to talking about, you know, the impact of the tech companies. But with that comes a host of agreements that we then need to think about data hosting, etc. So it's certainly an interesting landscape, I'd say. Yeah, so I mean, with all these new therapeutic areas, new technologies, more parties involved, more legal issues, further regulation. Um, you know, my question is, I, I guess, is is it, you know, are deals and collaborations becoming more and more complicated over time? Roland, any thoughts? Yeah, I certainly agree. I think that's that's a true statement and a fair statement that um, we see um, that uh, the classical collaboration between two partners and in the same industry, um, like a co-marketing agreement, for instance, that still exists, as we said before, definitely. And it's very important still, but we see a lot of uh, more complexity in the arrangements. Uh, Sarah just mentioned the technical aspects. Um, we see different players from different cultures, if I may say so, um, collaborating together. The obvious example would be a startup tying up with a big uh, medtech or pharmaceutical company in order to uh, jointly develop or what we see, for instance, um, currently um, also um, healthcare providers or small um, startup medical devices companies partnering up with the big tech companies in order to um, uh, for wearables or stuff like that, for instance. So and there, when 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 we see that from a legal point of view, it needs to be addressed in the um, first of all in the agreements what needs to be covered, but also in how we deal with these forms of collaborations from a legal point of view, because typically um, a smaller company, a very fast-moving startup company, would 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 be very interested in getting it very quickly over the line and in, in, in um, yeah doing everything to make it happen. Whereas the traditional approach of a collaboration in the big pharmaceutical or medical devices company would be a slightly different one. Also to bring it over the line, of course, but with many different stakeholders involved. So it's also bringing together from a legal side these different approaches, these different cultures. And what is what is important and, and what facilitates this bringing together from our experience is the um, expertise in the uh, concrete industry sector. So, for instance, in healthcare or pharmaceuticals in our um, field, where um, if, we, if we have new players entering here um, who were a tech company before or as with COVID-19, who were um, in the traditional um, industry before, um, not in the healthcare space, in the life sciences space, you would you would face uh, several questions around the lines. Why do we need to care so much about the regulatory framework? Why are you asking me for the licensing I need to have or the registrations I need to have? Why, where does it come from? And to to get to get this together to um, address it in SPAs or in in collaboration agreements and distribution agreements. Um, that's a key, I think. And uh, and the, again, the the current situation shows that when you when you get out of the comfort zone as a as an industry player, which is probably key in order to survive these days, it also brings about a lot of 
um, legal challenges that need to be addressed. And the best to address them is, of course, they have the sector expertise to um, to bring this uh, together. So I think um, complex, as you see from my um, answer, I think the answer is definitely yes. So just building on what Roland said around the areas of complexity, there's certainly more regulation. And it's not just more regulation. I think it's more activities by regulators who are perfectly happy to enforce those regulations. So we all know about GDPR. We all know about the complexities of that. We've heard about the increasing level of fines that come, come through from that. But it's not just GDPR, which I know we all hear about a lot, but also in areas like in the US, we hear that HIPAA fines used to only be around 100,000 in 2008, but by 10 years later, they were nearly at 30 million in terms of fines. And then also they've added complexity through the whole reimbursement structure in different jurisdictions. So in the UK, we're moving much more to a model of um, um, outcome-based payments. So Janssen, for example, had a drug, a hepatitis C drug, and they were told that if they couldn't effectively get results within about 12 weeks of the treatment being put through, then they would actually have to fund that themselves. Well, that sort of outcome-based payment structure is obviously going to impact on their view of how they structure deals and how they think about getting the monetary value for what they're doing. And then increasingly, because everyone needs to try and make as much out of the opportunities as they can, we're seeing more complexity, even at the early stage of these deals, where universities are much more savvy now, I would say, in appreciating the value of the intellectual property assets they have. So compared to around 20 years ago in the US, we're seeing that the number of patent filings in universities has been going up about 300% every year. So, and those universities are staying in much longer in these arrangements than they used to as well. So it's not just going back to our tried and tested that they just do one license arrangement and they're kind of out. They like to follow through on their investment and they like to make sure that they're gonna keep getting returns all the way through the value chain. Uh, can can you give us some examples maybe of of what these um, you know more complex deals actually look like, Laurent? Mm, the 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 new deal models are, are organized around um, uh, partnerships at the level of uh, R and D, uh, manufacturing and and marketing at the the R and D level. Uh, companies that were accustomed to Developing in-house are, are now willing to work with partner with an expertise or, or from a sector different from their own, uh, notably software companies, but but not only. Uh, for instance, uh, uh, at this time uh, we see uh, uh, in the COVID-19, uh, uh, Sanofi and GSK are working together to develop uh, an adjuvanted uh, vaccine using uh, innovative uh, technology from both companies. New partners from different sectors or in of industries may have different working methods. For example, the collaboration between IT and pharma companies can lead to the use of the so-called agile method for the development of a product or service, which involves a, a continuous adaptation and evolution of, uh, of the project. With such a, a method, it's necessary to be particularly vigilant uh, with regard to milestones, deadlines, and deliverables in order to, uh, to precisely determine the, the party's obligations and at the end uh, try to, to avoid disputes. With respect to the, the commercialization of product and services, the fact that they have been de developed in a collaborative manner 
is likely to lead uh, to a, a specialization uh, in the context of uh, exploitation, as we can see uh, uh, with the, uh, the R&D uh, agreements, uh, EU regulation, uh, for example, with an exclusivity granted to one of the parties for the, the marketing activity. The different parties can also agree to, to divide the market uh, geographically by, by sector, uh, like uh, human health or uh, veterinary care, food industry, etc., or by type of uh, customer, which uh, obviously creates complex competition law issues that must be identified at an early stage of the project and, and, and carefully managed. Yeah, and just another couple of examples. I mean, there's so many. I mean, that's a great thing about our sector that it's constantly sort of changing and, and there is increasingly not a typical sort of new arrangement. But there was one that was put in place in response to the coronavirus, which was the CARE Consortium. So that was Corona Accelerated R&D Europe Consortium. And that was made up of around 37 large players in the industry. So GSK, Sanofi, Takeda, a number of players and universities. So if you think about putting together that group of entities, inevitably there's going to be lots of discussion around IP, both background and foreground IP. This is a five-year research project, so things are going to evolve over time. And so the complexities around that area add to that that actually a number of EU bodies came in to support the consortium as well. So the IMI initiative is involved and they, as probably a number of people know, is a sort of private public body and part of their mantra is trying to get the findings of the research out into the market and available for everybody. So, so I imagine discussions around trying to sort out what the particular IP arrangements and how best to make use of it. It's not necessarily that people want to own it, but how do you best capitalise on the findings from a research project that's going on for five years where you have about 40 parties participating? So that's a really interesting one, I think. Another example more localised in the UK is that Novartis has entered into an arrangement with NHS England where they are doing their phase three for one of their um, drugs, their cholesterol drug, through one of the hospitals in, the, in London. That's not particularly unusual, but it's got a three-part phase to it. So assuming the phase three goes well, they have already signed up to a part two, which is going to be given access to high-risk patients that they can um, effectively have immediate access to. And that's already sort of built into the arrangement. And that's, that's fairly novel. And then the third stage, which is taking it that bit further, is that actually they are going to collaborate with other people on how best to manufacture this product should it get to that stage. So it, it's really sort of interesting that they've already put in place the building blocks to try and get it through to market, even just from actually doing the phase three study. And if I may, may add one point to that, um, great examples about the collaboration from a legal um, side, one important aspect to bear in mind is, of course, competition law. If we talk about the quest for a vaccine collaboration in protective um, personal protective equipment or medical device development, often these are competitors or at least potential competitors. So normally you would say, hang on, can I really do this? Because the competition law is still there. And of course it is. And uh, there's no exemption of these collaborations, cooperations, be it in light of COVID-19 or in general, um, from the competition law side and, and the, the regulations. However, what we've seen, and um, this adds once more to the complexity, 
um, is that the European Commission and also the International Competition Network have issued kind of temporary framework for assessing antitrust issues in relation to our collaborations um, in the quest against COVID-19. Um, and generally speaking, without wanting to go into the details, one can observe that there's some kind of more lenient approach uh, and, and um, uh, empowering companies to do some kind of collaboration and to 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 be a, be slightly more reluctant to actually be uh, to enforce it in in a in a, in a straight way. However. Um, of course, there are still these boundaries, and the interesting question will be: What does temporary actually mean? How long will it take? What to do with uh, once once we come to a point where this justification may no longer apply? So, so that's very important also to bear in mind when setting up these collaborations. And another example, what we see is that still there is enforcement, and and particularly in Germany, we've just seen it, and I think in other US jurisdictions as well in Europe. And when it comes to pricing, because what we've certainly seen in a in a situation of scarcity is that prices raise very um, or can can raise, uh, can rise very highly, and there are now investigations into personal protective equipment and, and disinfectants uh, for for sudden price uh, peaks and uh, potential misuse of market dominance. So. Uh, competition law in these times is also a very uh, interesting and, and an important aspect to, to bear in mind when talking about these collaborations. And what do you think is causing the changes? What are the factors that are the most important? As already mentioned, uh, patients with, uh, with complex diseases are, are looking for a complete and personalized solution. Uh, also, the, the cost of innovation can be a, an obstacle and collaboration between companies is a way to help uh, secure access to, to finance, uh, attract new investors, and, and of course, share costs. The hunt for, for innovative uh, new products to add to the pipe as pharmaceutical companies tailor their portfolios and search for next potential blockbuster is driving up costs. For example, the, uh, the competition associated with uh, acquiring a fledging biotech company that owns a promising candidate has led to uh, to increasingly large costs for, for big pharma. And uh, I, I believe collaborations or, uh, or alternative complex deal structures can avoid the, the cost of uh, acquiring a company. Moreover, every, every business has areas of weakness, but also a specific expertise that I can offer to, to the others in to their, their participation in the project. So yeah, just picking up on what Lauren said, the industry we're operating in is rapidly changing. People are increasingly finding that their R&D budgets are stretched. So that's because there aren't as many readily available products on the market. There's more generics coming through, there's increased competition, but a large part of that is also the increased regulation as well. And we see that our industry reacts to things which are happening in the market as you would expect it to. So a number of us are aware, I'm sure, of the PIP um, breast scandal, which was the trigger for 
the re-looking at all of the medical devices regulations. So we now have the new regulation that will be coming through. It's been delayed, but there's no question that it will be coming through. And under that, we now have much more stringent requirements relating to medical devices. It's something like four times longer than the current legislation. It's got something like five times more annexes that we all have to get our heads around. And in terms of the complexity of the regulation, we're now finding that it's there's a lot of reclassification of medical devices. So a number of them are going to be sort of higher risk products. We're finding that it's covering more areas than it did before. So for example, covering cosmetics in more detail. And then it's attaching obligations to more people within the supply chain and more onerous obligations. So manufacturers, for example, will now have obligations to put in data, post-market data relating to um, incidents relating to the product. They'll have to put that into the new Udemed portal when it's set up. There are increasing obligations on notified bodies as well. So they have much more stringent requirements than they used to have too. And indeed, it's a very good example, I think, how regulatory changes also impact on collaboration and need to be reflected then in the kind of civil law um, uh, arrangements framework. One example from the medical devices industry is the um, so-called OEM PLM cons um, um, constellation, where um, the legal manufacturer, from the regulatory point of view, is actually not producing the product itself. So, in other words, there's one company that actually manufactures the product, the OEM, and it delivers it to another company, which is then the legal manufacturer and takes responsibility for the product from a regulatory point of view. So it's a very common collaboration model, especially in the medical devices industry. And uh, the traditional collaboration model was saying, well, okay, you produce your product and, and I can then bring it onto the market under my own name. And of course, if you produce it, um, then there's a lot of know-how IP in it and I don't want to, I don't need to see it because it's your IP, the OEM. And if the regulator comes, if the notified body comes, I will tell them, go there and you get it. Now with the MDR, the, the issue is that I as a legal manufacturer need to have this information. And it is very questionable whether this traditional collaboration model that reserves the OEM the right to uh, guide their IP and also to uh, only to um, yeah, provided to the to the notified body on um, if questioned is actually still uh, feasible. Um, many people say it's not, and actually the legal manufacturer needs to be um, needs to have uh, yeah dispose of all this um, IP, which is of course a, a big issue for the protection of know-how and IP, and which again shows how the regulatory framework. In this case, it directly impacts the collaboration model and the framework of the uh, agreements that need to be concluded. So the regulations driving change in the industry and the contractual models are changing as a result. And what, what are the likely consequences of that, Sarah? Well, I think one of the consequences is when you're looking at the sort of tail end life of these products, because over that, the lifespan, as we've established, there will have been multiple different arrangements that have been put in place with multiple different parties. So we're seeing in the industry that a lot of the larger players are disposing of some of their tail end mature products. So people like Sanofi, AstraZeneca, and we've worked on a number of those deals. And what we tend to find is when we're doing our due diligence, there is a complex matrix 
matrix of arrangements that we need to make sure that the title to those assets are flowing through in order for our client, if, it's, if we're acting for the purchaser, to be able to get good title to those assets, both on the IP side, but also the regulatory side, to make sure those rights really come through. So there's a lot more due diligence to be done, which is adding you know, a certain level of complexity. And then because of the regulatory position, you can't just expect a purchaser to be able to step into the shoes having bought the product. So often the or normally the seller will need to continue to act as distributor on behalf of the purchaser for a period of time pending those regulatory transfers happening and, and the period that that takes will obviously vary depending on what jurisdictional reach the particular product is being marketed in so we're finding that there's more sort of complexity there also the seller will often need to continue to act as a um, either the manufacturer or sourcing of the product for the purchaser for a period of time until they set up their own arrangements as well so again because of the regulatory position they can't just come in and obviously just start producing the product themselves they will need to establish themselves um, to be able to do that so often the seller needs to keep involved so all, all of these factors show there's you know increasing time and complexity and resources required to understand the position and get these deals completed. Also, the, the, the multiplication of parties within the, the same project necessarily leads to an increase in the, the complexity of the agreements governing this, this project. Each participant uh, has its own interest that must be balanced with, with those of the others. The, the protection by each party of its know-how and, and IP rights is at the heart of, uh, of the discussions. Yeah, and to add uh, one aspect and to emphasize it, I think what we see uh, in these um, more complex collaborations is that the parties coming from different angles have, have of course, different interests. And it's key for also a successful collaboration to bring these interests together. Just one example is IP. Um, in uh, often the the the, the key um, aspect of collaborations, particularly in tech um, issues or in, in pharmaceutical collaborations. So who owns the IP that is, um, yeah, belonging to the to the parties beforehand? That's clear background IP. But who actually know owns what is developed? Is it joint IP? How do you um, uh, separate this? And what happens with with the know-how? Um, I just briefly talked about the OEM uh, issue. So if one party brings in much know-how into the collaboration and it's not certain that they will um, be um, together for forever, so to speak, so what happens if they go if they go apart? These are key points that that become increasingly um, important in in these uh, collaboration issues and joint development um, projects. So I'd like to turn to um, to to the area of the the, the participants. Uh, in these commercial collaborations, and we're we're discussing a whole new load of entrants, new entrants to the market, and some of those I think in the current time of COVID are, are sort of coming in, sort of temporarily, uh, opportunistically perhaps uh, because of the uh, coronavirus situation. But others, probably more long-term disruptors, who arguably you know would have would have come at some stage in any event, and are certainly here. Um, but I think it would be helpful just to, to sort of hear who, who are these parties who are, who, are, who are new to the life sciences industry? I think one, I would say it uh, can, can be three kinds of um, parties um, in, in, in recent months. 
First one is, um, that's not new, um, it's um, private equity and investors um, who are not traditional companies in the pharmaceutical or healthcare space. They enter the market, they see healthcare and pharmaceuticals as a very interesting investment opportunity because it well, traditionally does not generate huge um, um, turnaround, but uh, on the other hand, is very safe. And therefore, we see a lot of investments coming in in the healthcare space, for instance, in, in medical um, service centers or also in MedDev companies and IVD companies. I think that's the current trend. Um, many interesting projects in the IVD space and testing space. Then as a result, the second group would be uh, different uh, from different industries, but traditional kind of industry companies who have uh, switched production or extended production into um, medical devices and, and personal protective equipment. For instance, uh, in relation to the mask business, we see um, coffee producers or mattress producers or textile producers entering the, the market of personal protective equipment. And to them, of course, this whole um, area is completely new from a regulatory aspect. Another example in this um, different industry players entering would be obviously the tech companies, but no, that's nothing new. And what struck us in the recent months and was kind of a little bit new to the healthcare and, and pharmaceutical side, I think, is the very important role of a state. Um, for instance, in Germany, uh, the German state decided to buy massive amounts of protective masks. So they really entered into the market. They even uh, took on the role of the importer and of the uh, responsible person bringing such masks onto the market. And we've seen it also in the quest for, for vaccines that uh, compensation schemes and, and support mechanisms are, are developed where the state um, also takes, takes really an important role. And um, these are, I think, the, the key, key trends in, in my, my view. So, yeah, as Roland mentioned, I mean, all the big tech players are investing really heavily in the sector now. So we saw, for example, that Amazon bought PillPack, which is an online pharmacy in the US, and they pay something like $750 million for it. So they're using the skill set they've got, their logistics expertise to leverage it into the life science area. Similarly, we found that Apple had produced a sort of heart rate study with Stanford Medicine using their sort of Apple Watch technology, where they were able to monitor irregular heartbeats and let people know whether they might have life-threatening diseases. The, the additional fact they were able to do is sort of collate that data and use it to keep developing their own technology as well. And it's not just that technology companies are doing this by themselves, they are partnering with the traditional life science players as well. So so we've, for example, seen that Microsoft has collaborated with Novartis in the AI space in relation to personalized medicine. We're seeing smaller tech players come through who maybe are not so well known yet. So I think it was only about last week that a company called NVIDIA has entered into collaboration arrangements with GSK and AstraZeneca, again, with using their AI technology to help with research development. And then there's a number of smaller players. So there's one in the UK called Accenture, and that, again, is in the AI space. And it is entered into a number of collaborations with different pharma companies to help them with their sort of AI solution. 
And then as Roland said, he mentioned sort of mattress makers in terms of helping in the PPE space. But there are other people who have responded to the coronavirus. So companies like Prada and Gucci have been making face masks. But then we also have those who are traditional perfume manufacturers like um, Dior, who are now producing hand sanitizers, are, as well as people, um, distillers such as Pernod Ricard, they've also sort of got into the space and are helping out producing hand sanitizers too. So there's, there's an interesting mix of players, I think. And as Nick, I think you said at the start, some of these are probably here to stay, certainly the tech companies, and some of them may just be being responsive to the particular circumstances we now find ourselves in. So we're, we're running short of time, but just uh, maybe one last question. Are, are these new kids on the block are they are they here to stay yeah i can't um imitate a song now but i think yes <laughs> the the answer is yes um i think uh, we we've seen them for a long time entering into the market and continuing to be there and it seems that they are not, not so much new kids now but they are maybe adolescents already and now really uh, starting to 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 go into the next onto the next level and if it's true that data is the fuel of not the economy but also also the health economy then i think it it's it's um yeah uh, it's clear where the journey goes and we've seen i think in the covid uh, situation several companies entering the market and um helping out so to speak and using opportunities very important opportunities um, but after all, um, uh, these uh, yeah, data-driven companies with different, um, also different business models are certainly disrupting and uh, developing further the healthcare and life science industry, I'm sure. So I imagine, you know, the Pradas and the Dior's of this world are going to go back to their normal conventional business when times permit them to do that. But the tech players are definitely here to stay. They've invested heavily in the sector. They've got access to real world data, which I think is incredibly useful to partner that with the medical data. So um, they're here to stay. And I think that's a good thing. They know how to process this data. They know how to bring it together with the other data that they're collating. So it, I think it's powerful and will be a good thing for the industry generally. Well, fascinating discussions. Um, we spoke at the start about all of these new new parties, new entrants. I think what's, what's quite interesting is the almost sort of symbiotic relationship that's uh, building between them. That the patients uh, are definitely demanding more personalised and convenient uh, tech-driven solutions, but they're also prepared to be more informed, more involved, more engaged in the whole process. The technology companies, it's too good an opportunity for them to miss, as Sarah says, and they've definitely got the technology that's required. They've also got the data, and you see that in large markets like China with huge populations, but they're not always necessarily fully um, up to speed yet on all of the regulatory pathways or the, the best means of market access. And then the startups who've always been providing, you know, the innovation and new ideas, um, you know, now managing to to capture the uh, the investment to obtain the capital they need to learn and be involved and learn you know management expertise from from the more established uh, parties and then as as Roland says the state you know being much more involved not just as a regulator now but more as a partner uh, to the industry and, and certainly we're seeing that in current times and I think for the more established players what we're hearing is is the the traditional models they will continue particularly where where time is is of the essence but these uh, these bigger more complex collaborations will also evolve and we'll see bigger multi-party multi-jurisdiction consortia 
innovation centres and the like. So very complex collaborations there as well. So I'd like to thank all three of you for really fascinating insights and your time. Uh, thank you for joining us for this edition of On The Pulse. We hope that you found our discussions to be thought provoking and insightful. If you'd like to discuss any of the topics covered, please do get in touch. To find out more about On The Pulse and CMS's global life sciences and healthcare group, visit cms.law. Audio versions of On The Pulse are available through your usual podcast store. Thank you.